Will you turn with me please back to uh, the prophecy of Nahum? And just to remind you, I know it's one of these slippery wee books that are quite hard to find. Uh, it's in page 937 in the Red uh, Church Bible. No pictures? Yep, thanks Jonathan. Uh, do you recognise uh, this chap? He's called Dennis McWiggy. And the next one, Johnny? No. No, no. Yes, that's her. And yeah, I may have to work on, work on Johnny a bit. Uh, this lady's called Nadia Murad. And Dennis McWiggy and Nadia Murad, as some of you I'm sure will know, uh, won uh, the Nobel Peace Prize this year. Uh, Dr. McQuiggy is a gynaecologist uh, working in the Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, who for 20 years has been uh, repairing the damaged bodies of, of, of women uh, uh, assaulted and raped in local conflicts. And Ms. Murad, um, she was kidnapped and, and raped by uh, Islamic State in Iraq, and she escaped and has publicised uh, her plight and others. What a world we live in. But you might say to me, well, the big picture is that uh, the world is actually becoming more peaceful. And that is true. For generations, the number of violent deaths in the world have been declining. People are living longer, much longer actually, because of advances in vaccination and other public health uh, benefits right across the globe. Poverty is declining, it certainly is. Uh, people are getting richer. Um, and that, that's because of advances in, in uh, education, in markets, in contracts being respected and so on. And yet, just last week, I'm sure many of you noticed that dreadful story about the journalist who was apparently uh, kidnapped inside uh, the Saudi uh, embassy in Turkey. And as I'm sure many of you know, Christians continue to be persecuted throughout the world in countries like uh, Pakistan and, and, and other uh, Muslim states, uh, and also in India, and at a much lower level, of course, but still significant to note this, even our own country, just last week, uh, an MSP uh, referred to the law-abiding Christians of the Western Isles as the Tartan Taliban. An absurd and disgraceful uh, comparison. And of course, there's been lots of publicity over the last year about how uh, rich and, and powerful men have taken uh, improper sexual advantage of women, uh, the Me Too movement. Where's the justice for many of these people? What justice will they have? The women in Congo and in, in Iraq that uh, Ms. Murad and, and Dr. McWiggy have been uh, helping and publicising. Who, where's the justice for the Christians uh, imprisoned and assaulted and tortured and killed? And what is a little book of just 47 verses written 2,600 years ago got to say to any of that. Listen on. Well, uh, Nahum of uh, Elkosh. No one knows who Elkosh was, so I won't 
bother with that, but he lived about 100 years after the much better known Jonah. You all know the story of Jonah, I'm sure, extremely well. And Jonah had been sent to preach judgment on the great city of Nineveh. The map, Jonathan? Good man. And can you spot Nineveh up there in the middle of the purple bit? Nineveh, that's where it was. And in the little brown bit at the bottom there, on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, that's the tiny little kingdom of Judah. And somewhere in that was where Nahum flourished in Elkosh. Now, as you know, Jonah, 100 years before Nahum, he didn't want to go to Nineveh to, to preach uh, judgment upon them. And he said, that's why I ran away, for I know you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's what Jonah said. That was his reason. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Of course, God did relent. The people of Nineveh turned from their evil ways. But now, a hundred years later, Nineveh is back in the crosshairs. Nineveh, the great capital of Assyria, it's on the great river, the, the Tigris. It was once the largest city in the world, so I've read. And today, if you're interested, it's within the boundaries of the Iraqi city of Mosul, which for a while was under the domination of Islamic State. And uh, Lord Byron uh, wrote about the depredations uh, or the invasions of the Assyrians from the north down into Israel uh, and Judah. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. And the Assyrians were like wolves wolves on, uh, on sheep, trampling over the northern kingdom of Judah. It's above the little brown bit there. Too many captives. Their cruelty and their violence was notorious uh, in the ancient world. One inscription from a temple records the fate of some who rebelled against one of their kings, Ashurbanipal. This is him boasting. He actually recorded this. Who would record this? I built a pillar at the city gate and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up inside the pillar. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. And then Jonathan, the, the, the picture of the... Yeah. And that um, rather hideous, horrible picture is part of what's called the Lachish Reliefs. It's now in the British Museum. You, you can see that there's a whole room filled with these, these kind of plaques showing the, the boastful uh, uh, descriptions of what the Assyrians did when they invaded Judah in King Hezekiah's day. That was the little brown bit on the map, you'll remember, and captured the city of Lachish. And I won't bother describing what's the hideous things uh, that are happening, happening there. At the height of their power, when Nahum wrote, who could resist the Assyrians. First thing, Jonathan. Okay, from now on, just look at three very simple points. God of wrath, God our refuge, and the gospel of God. God of wrath, God our refuge, and the gospel of God. Well, first of all then, the God of wrath. And just a few uh, quotes there. The book begins by saying it's an oracle concerning Nineveh. And if you, look, if you read that first chapter, you'll see when Nineveh is mentioned, 
later on in the translation, there's little brackets around it. And that tells us it's not actually there in the original. Nineveh is only mentioned once in that first chapter. Chapter 1 is all about God. Ten times in this first chapter, the personal name of God, the Lord, and that's in our version, uh, you'll see it's in little capital letters, like, for example, in verse 2, the Lord. That's the personal, private name of God, yet it's mentioned there uh, ten times. And what a picture, isn't it, of um, a God of, of wrath, of jealousy, of vengeance, of anger, controlling the winds uh, and the storms, drying up the seas. Who can endure his anger? Like an, like an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and drive them into darkness. Now, some people might find this notion of a God of jealousy, of vengeance, of that anger, a bit uncomfortable, a bit unsettling. One who pursues his enemies into darkness. But of course, the God of the Bible is not the God of our society's sentimental imaginations. Kind of mixed up with Santa Claus and kind of gushy descriptions of the afterlife uh, in the media. Kind of a picture of a kind of idealised, white-bearded, granddad, well-meaning and nice, it's so wet and so weak and so wrong. The violence, the strength, the majesty, the power, the destructive power of the God of Nahum chapter 1, that is one before whom we should tremble, fall on our faces, one whom we should fear. And this God of power and of majesty who pursues his enemies is one whom the people of Judah needed at the time of Nahum. They had suffered under the long and wicked reign of King Manasseh, who was the son of, of, of King Hezekiah of Isaiah's day. Uh, he was actually a loyal vassal of the Assyrians, although he fell out with them at one point. We're told in Second Chronicles 23, he was captured with hooks and dragged off um, into, into their territory in chains of bronze. God is jealous. For us, that's a rather ugly emotion, isn't it? If you're jealous of somebody. We don't think positive thoughts when we talk about jealousy. Some of you are jealous of someone else's apparent good fortune or their health or their connections or their relationships or whatever. One definition of jealousy puts it, feeling or showing an envious resentment of someone or their achievements, possessions, or advantages. But God doesn't want or need anything we have. And there is another definition, fiercely protective of one's rights or possessions. And that is the sense of jealousy that's used here. In Nahum's day, to say God was jealous meant that he was protective fiercely protective of his covenant people, those people of Judah 
with whom he had made a covenant. The Assyrians had in God's providence been sent as a means of judgment upon Israel and then Judah for their sin and for their rebellion. But God had not forgotten them. The time had come for his enemies to know his power. And in 612 BC, Nineveh was actually captured. And you can see that at the end of this chapter, what uh, the, the oracle is saying. You have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images. I will prepare your grave for your vile. And in 612, Nineveh was captured and so utterly destroyed that for 2,000 years, nobody even knew where it was. Eventually, it was rediscovered in the 19th century. And do you have a vengeance? Is that an attractive notion for you? I suspect some of you anyway quite enjoy sort of uh, movies where revenge is one of the themes. Might be a guilty pleasure, but you can detect the power of the emotion. There's a famous film, a John Ford film, starring John Wayne called The Searchers. It's a western, and in it, John Wayne, the kind of hero or anti-hero, over years and years, tries to track down relentlessly and to rescue his niece who's been kidnapped and to punish those who killed his family and kidnapped the girl. We can understand the power uh, of that emotion. And yet we know, don't we, that kind of vigilante vengeance is wrong uh, and foolish, dangerous and wrong, even at the kind of trivial level uh, of sport. Um, you know, uh, the skillful player hacked down by the thuggish defender, he's much more liable to be severely punished if he jumps up and retaliates than the original criminal. Dispensing justice is for the referee eh, on the sports field. And God tells us to obey our rulers who have authority over us. They have the power of the sword, as Paul tells us eh, in Romans. Because personal vengeance is so often misdirected, disproportionate, and even plain wrong. That's how we're told, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. In Romans 12, 19, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For as it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And there is a definition on the screen there. It's punishment inflicted or retribution exacted for an injury or wrong. And that is a feature of the God of Nahum, chapter 1, a God of right and just and appropriate vengeance. Will God get it wrong? His vengeance will be precise and accurate and exactly on the point. He will not clear the guilty. Or as it's put here in verse 3, the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. In the ESV that some of you use, it says he will not clear the guilty. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. 
So, to those downtrodden by oppressors, those women who've been uh, so violated that Dr. McQuiggy helps, these violators will rarely see a human court of justice. The Bible says God will judge and judge severely. A Croatian theologian called Miroslav Wolf, and I've quoted him there as well, he's written very eloquently on this. He says, The practice of non-violence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West. But imagine speaking to people, and he says, I have, maybe he's from Croatia, he lived there during the wars in the Balkans whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and levelled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers had their throats slit. You point to them? We should not retaliate. Why not? I say, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the idea that human non-violence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. The Bible, and especially for our purposes, Nahum tonight, proclaims a God who is angry at sin who will punish the guilty and will pursue his enemies and then I'm sure you noticed in the midst of all this dramatic and powerful and scary language there's verse 7 the Lord is good a refuge in times of trouble he cares for those who trust in him God is good, well, not earth-shattering new knowledge to any of you tonight. Of course he is. His wrath and indignation, his drying of the seas, his breaking of the hills, his, uh, they're not the temper tantrums of some cosmic toddler. God is good, but he exercises his power and his wrath when he is jealous and avenging. And he is our stronghold in time of trouble. A mighty fortress is our God, was Luther's interpretation of God as our refuge and our strength from Psalm 46. And that was true. God was our refuge or his refuge. That was true when Paul was shipwrecked, shipwrecked off Malta. When Stephen was being stoned round about AD 33. And any number of Christian martyrs like, say, George Wishart uh, was, uh, was burned at the stake in 1546 in St Andrews. We are always in God's hands and must trust in his mighty judgment and power. So when you're going through the, the mill at work, as I'm sure some of you perhaps are, or having real trouble with, with family and other relationships, 
Perhaps those people we love are desperately ill, perhaps even dying. God is our refuge, our mighty fortress, our stronghold. Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecution, with difficulties for Christ's sake. When I am weak, then I am strong. And in 1 Corinthians 10 he said, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. And God cares for those who trust in him, who take refuge in him. As Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 14, I know my sheep. He chose them. He knows his sheep. And therefore we can trust in him and take refuge in him. Well, in our world today, I said earlier on that people are getting more prosperous, living longer, having all these wonderful benefits that we enjoy in terms of health and so on. We're living in an age of unrivaled prosperity. Many people have little computers at their hand. I better not touch Ava's machine here in case I break it, but with little computers at your hand of astonishing power. People are living longer. Their health is better. And yet, especially in the Western world, there's just so much dissatisfaction with... um, a sense of failure from so many, underachievement, body dysmorphia, lack of Instagram likes. They're all features of malaise and unhappiness today. You might think these are afflictions of, of wealthy societies uh, where people are so needy for approval that these things become important. If we think back to Scotland in 1800, when life expectancy at birth was probably less than 40, probably nearly all of us here would have been either in the families of agricultural labourers or be agricultural labourers ourselves, working dawn to dusk with uh, hard, unremitting physical toil for all of our lives until we died. with virtually none of the benefits that we enjoy here and no time for these modern problems. Why are we not more grateful as a society for all these wonderful benefits eh, that we have? People today perhaps don't really know what they really want and what they really need. Well, Nahum was reminding people way back around 630 BC that God knew them, that he was their refuge. And that is one of the great comforts of the gospel today, to be loved, admired, adored by this God of of power and of majesty, of strength and of glory. We all long to to be loved, to be admired, to be respected 
And so much hurt comes from the breakdown of human relationships when these things aren't available, when they're damaged. Well, the Christian gospel offers love and protection and, yes, respect from God himself. Enjoy the next one. Third point, the gospel of God. So God is good, he's a refuge and a protector. But as Nahum makes very clear, makes very terrifyingly clear, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. He will not clear the guilty. They are the object of his wrath and his hostility and his condemnation. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Now the immediate object of God's wrath and, and indignation were the Assyrian Empire, the people of Nineveh. And that empire was crushed and defeated in 612 BC and passed out of human knowledge for millennia, as it says in verse 14 there. If that was all Nahum was saying, then it might be, well, an interesting little snapshot of ancient poetry, which scholars and experts would spend some time over it. But the words in application are timeless. Just as the comfort of verse 7 applies to us today, so too does God's judgment on the guilty. Viroslav Wolf, the, the Croatian chap I mentioned before, he said the only credible God is a God of justice and vengeance. And so to these, these wicked people, those rapists of, of Congo and ISIS, the violators and murderers and perpetrators and approvers of genocide, the message is your crimes are subject to divine justice. And so are yours and so are mine. We may not have committed these heinous acts of wickedness, but of course we have sinned, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and 23. And the horrible truth is that all of the human race are enemies of God and subject, subject to what Nahum tells us is the fate of the enemies of God. We without the gospel are in the same category as the rapists and the murderers. Of course, of course, some sins are much worse than others. But all are guilty. And when we see media coverage of dreadful events in the world, as we can do nowadays, of violence and of hostility, and then abusive language of uh, bullying at school and at work, and on and on and on, as it's all too easy for us, perhaps rightly, to be repulsed at such behaviour. And not anything so rightly feel smug about our own our own position. We can look down on these awful, dreadful people because we would never do such things. Well, don't be too sure. The Germany of the 1930s was one of the most educated and civilised nations on the face of the earth. 
long-standing Christian culture. Strong and well-attended churches of all denominations. And yet we all know the barbarism into which that society fell very quickly. And only a tiny number of people, tiny number of people, stood out against the violence perpetrated against the Jews and others. And it is true, of course, I guess, though, that most of us, perhaps through lack of opportunity, will not commit these heinous, wicked crimes. But by comparing ourselves to others and their wickedness, we can lose a sense of our own sin. Because every person on earth is in the same big category as those who sin wickedly, offensively and grossly. Is that your self-image? I'm not sure it's helping your self-esteem to be told how wicked we are, how absent we are, how God sees us. God will not leave the guilty unpunished. How can that be true? And Nahum, in the very same chapter, talk about God caring for those who trust in him. It's been suggested that Nahum may well have been a a disciple or or a pupil of Isaiah. The numbers work out in terms of dates. And he certainly quotes Isaiah towards the end of the chapter. Verse 15, he's quoting Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 7. Look there in the mountains, the feet to one of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. And Paul also quotes Isaiah and Nahum in Romans 10, 15. And there he is talking of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, who brings peace between God and humanity. And that good news makes sense of Nahum's oracle and makes it relevant eh, for us today. In Nahum's day, the, the truth he brought was primarily judgment upon Nineveh, upon the Assyrian Empire and all God's enemies. That time around, there was no repentance and Nineveh it was destroyed. God did not clear the guilty. And that is true today. God will judge and the injustices of this sinful world will be dealt with. And of course, the gospel revealed, the gospel revealed that in Jesus, sin is punished and dealt with. Listen, listen, on the mountains, there's the feet. Someone hurrying with good news. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So those in him and Christ, their sins are judged and they're punished. And all the violence and the horror of Nahum chapter 1, they came to Jesus on the cross. He bore our sins in his body 
on the tree. 1 Peter chapter 2. Because God, Jesus knew the anger, the violent anger and vengeance of God against his enemies. Having became sin, he was punished as the guilty one. God will not leave the guilty unpunished. And Jesus was that guilty one becoming sin for us. Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath poured out like fire and the rocks shattered before him. Is it any wonder that as Jesus hung on the cross at Golgotha, that a darkness came over Jerusalem, that there was an earthquake, and that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that, of course, is the good news. The good news that we all know and love. The gift of God. Those who by faith accept that gift of God are those who took refuge in him, who trust in him, who are cared for by him. But what are those who do not? Yeah, Second Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 is up there as well. He will punish those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power. And therefore, justice, justice will be done. Those in Christ, their sins, whether the ordinary, humdrum, regular sins of which possibly we're pretty careless are the worst excesses of violence that we can imagine. They are forgiven. And those in Christ are given a new status. The goodness and the righteousness of Christ is regarded as theirs and they're welcomed into the family of God. God is their refuge. And those who are outside Christ, they'll be punished with everlasting destruction and be shut out in the presence of the Lord and so justice really will be done and God will be a refuge to his people and he will care for those who trust in him exactly as Nahum said Many people have quoted uh, Dr. Keller's summary of the gospel, but it says it perfectly. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. 